WDBM East Lansing. The impact. And now, Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. In world news today, Greece is set to go to the polls again after days of coalition talks failed to produce agreement on a new government. A final round of talks this morning broke up without a deal, according to the BBC. In elections on May 6th, the majority of Greek voters backed parties opposed to austerity plans demanded by the EU and IMF in return for two bailouts. The Greek president will appoint a caretaker government tomorrow. In national news today, the United States will seek an effective treatment for Alzheimer's by 2020. 25, as it faces an aging population and spiraling health costs, according to the BBC. House Secretary Kathleen Sebelius announced the goal as part of the first national Alzheimer's plan. An additional $50 million will be added to refresh funding during 2012. Uh, more than 5 million Americans have Alzheimer's or related uh, dementias. That number is expected to reach 16 million by, million by 2050. And in Michigan news, teen offenders in Michigan are worse off than teens in other states. That's according to a new report from Michigan-based Second Chances for Youth and the state chapter of the ACLU. The report says Michigan's justice system is inconsistent in the way it treats juvenile offenders facing life in prison. Those inconsistencies include being more likely to have lawyers with disciplinary records and actually being more likely to receive longer sentences than a adults accused of similar crimes, according to Michigan Radio. Michigan is second in the nation in the number of inmates serving non-parolable life sentences or crimes committed as minors. And on the show today, we'll be talking about many, many things. Uh, there was a rally going on uh, last Thursday about um, a, a law that they want to pass that will ban all foreign laws here in Michigan. That includes Sharia law, which has been brought up a lot in the news. So we're going to have an expert at MSU come in and, and tell us everything we need to know about Sharia law, the Michigan's misconceptions, what it is, all that jazz. As all, we'll also be talking about gay marriage. And in the studio right now, we have Eight to the Bar. They're a Lansing-based band, and they'll be performing at the East Lansing Art Festival, which is going on this weekend. It's a two-day festival that features artists and musicians, and Eight to the Bar will perform on Sunday from 2.30 to 3.30, and they are here to perform and talk to us as well. Welcome, everyone. Thanks. So we have half of the band here. Um, well, a little more than half. We have five out of out of eight members. I'm assuming it's eight, and uh, they're here tonight. Uh, so can you go around and let's get closer to the mics a little bit and introduce yourself and, and what you do in the band. I'm Jen Sigget and I am one of the vocalists of the band. I'm Lindsay Rilko. I'm also a vocalist. Juliana Toole. I'm a vocalist. My name's Andy Wilson. I'm a trumpet player and uh, writing the arrangements. I'm Jeff Starr, and I'm the guitarist. So I'm recognizing you, a, a few of you guys from various other bands here in the Lansing area. <laughs> sure. So tell me a little bit about this band and how you formed. Wow, that's an interesting story. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, had ta- I had talked to Juliana because we all um, kind of congregated at Dagwoods where Jen... Um, holds down a, a really epic open mic every <laughs> Tuesday night. And um, all of us love to sing, all of us love to sing harmonies. I had grown up with my mom and her sisters singing harmonies to these songs like Sound of All Journey and Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy. And I mentioned to Juliana that I thought it would be really cool if we <laughs> worked it up. I mean, we're together all the time and sing together. So 
Juliana really did a lot of the work to, to she was the mover and the shaker along with mm. Andy to, to get it all together. So how do you balance, uh, I mean, how many people in here are, are also work with other bands in the area? I think everybody, everybody. in the room. Oh, everybody. <laughs> so. I'm raising my hand on radio. I don't mm-hmm. think that works. Yeah, I was going to count it off afterwards for our, <laughs> our, our non-visual audience. So how do you balance uh, performing with other bands as well as, as coming together as, as eight to the bar? It's tricky with eight members in the band, but... I think that's, uh, if you like a project, you kind of have to devote yourself to make the time for it. And it's worth it, I think, mm-hmm. with this group. And how long have you guys been around for? As eight to the bar? Not very long. <laughs> this is going to be our first gig. Oh, with, with, the full, gig. with the full band. We, oh, yeah. we did minor, yeah, minor yeah. gigs with the small group. Yeah, but. yeah. I see. So are you going to, I mean, at the East Lansing Art Festival this weekend, but will you be doing other performances later in the summer? We hope to be. We'll see. Yeah. It's hard because, like you said, I mean, there are yeah. so many other parts of so many other groups. So just trying to, is everybody free on this date schedules. is really yeah. hard yeah. to do sometimes. So so are you guys performing mostly covers or your own songs? How would you describe your music? Mostly covers, but we are doing one of Lindsay's tunes mm-hmm. from uh-huh. her album. Yeah, because, I mean, they're covers from the 40s, you know. Yeah. Or, yeah. Like, it's a different really, era. They're, yeah. they're old songs. They're like standards. The yeah. Right. So without further ado, would you guys like to perform something for us? Sure. <laughs> Which one's first? I think we're going to do Boogie Boogie Bugle Boy first. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Boogie, boogie, bugle, 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 bugle
And in the studio is H. The Bar. They are a Lansing-based band, and they'll be performing this Sunday at the East Lansing Art Festival, and they'll be performing from 2.30 until 3.30. So have you guys always lived in the Lansing area, most of you guys? Uh, I think maybe MSU brought a lot of people to town, but some people, I don't know, Jeff, how, how, did you grow up here? <laughs> yes. Yes, I was uh, born and raised and have been in Lansing most of my life, and I've traveled the world a little bit playing music. Yeah. I've gotten away a few times. Can you can you talk about the other bands that you guys are involved in, the, in the types of genres that you're usually uh, performing? Oh. How much time do you have? Um... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I do like Americana folk roots primarily with the uh, the bands that I am a part of. I am like a bluegrass folk grass band. Yeah, and I mostly am. Well, I'm interested in 40s, 30s, 40s. I play the ukulele and accompany myself. And Andy and I have a duo that we have, and, and a five piece band where we do mostly that, and then some 80s covers where with the ukulele. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so that's the stuff I do. Very interesting. I'll play any anything that uh, anyone will have me play. Um, I'll take the gig. Uh, yeah, we, um, you know, so we're talking about Lindsay Lou and the Flatbellies, Jen Siget and the, the Lincoln County process. Mm-hmm. Um, I play with Steppin' in it. Juliana and I together are the Springtails. also have those Delta Rhythm Kings, Bad Gravy, and The Lash. Um, so, uh, with only eight members, I think we have more than eight bands. Um, yeah. Jeff, uh, I do a lot of things. One of my main gigs currently is with a Detroit based group called, um, Skyline. Okay. Yeah. Every big city has a band called Skyline. (laughs) 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 So I, I was noticing Dagwoods has been thrown around a few times. So Jen Sigget, you, you host uh, the open mic night, which is tonight, probably. It is tonight. tonight. Yeah, <laughs> I'll be there in a couple hours. Right. So um, I've had Sam Corbin on the show before, mm-hmm. and he said that he met you through Dagwoods singing together, and I think you guys have performed together. Yep. Uh, Lindsay Liu, I understand maybe you your band also formed via Dagwoods. Yeah. <laughs> so what's, what? how would you describe that environment there? What kind of musicians play there, and, and how often is it that bands form? It seems like we've got at least three yeah. that are related in the room that have formed through Dagwoods Open Night Night. Well, I think it's kind of a cool mix of um, up-and-comers and unseasoned musicians and musicians who are already maybe playing for a living or, or gigging out for, you know, for a paycheck. And uh, I think that's kind of a nice give-and-take situation for the people that are less, you know, less uh, prepared to perform in front of an audience. They get to see people that are, you know, have a little bit more of a preparedness about their performance, you know. But performing in the same place. But in the, the same, same place, stage, yeah. yeah. So. It's, it's, a, it's like a really, you know, it's like a hip, thriving music scene, and it's it's obviously good for fostering, you know, new music. Mm-hmm. So I understand that you guys may be putting together an album this summer or working on one? That would be we awesome. keep talking about <laughs> <it>. <laughs> These things might happen. <laughs> Yeah, we, we like to we like to organize in that fashion. We got all kinds of great ideas. Um, <laughs> one of which is to perform at the art festival. <laughs> we have realized that one, and we got a bunch of other great ideas that uh, have yet to have be realized. Yeah. Right. Oh, what? All right. Uh, well, without further ado, let's 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 uh, have you guys perform one more song for us tonight. Okay. Great. Great. This one's sentimental journey. 
So back in on the bridge with the vocals after the solos. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, long. One chorus. Mm-hmm. Again in the studio is Eight to the Bar. They'll be performing this weekend at the East Lansing Art Festival. Studio is A to the Bar. They're a Lansing-based band. They'll be performing at the East Lansing Art Festival this Sunday from 2.30 until 3.30. A to the Bar, thanks so much for joining us tonight.
Thanks for having us. You're listening to Impact Exposure. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Friday nights at 10 p.m., get ready for The Mechanical Pulse, where we're spinning all the house, trance, drum and bass, electro, ambient, and remixed music you need to get the weekend started. You'll hear live interviews and DJs spinning straight from the Impact Studios and the best new music on the scene. So tune in every Friday night at 10 p.m. for Mechanical Pulse. Only on 88.9 The Impact. Have you ever considered donating your blood? If not, perhaps you might reconsider. By the time this announcement is through, 15 new people will need blood. In fact, blood is needed by one in every 10 hospital patients, and there is almost always a shortage. There is no substitute for human blood. It cannot be manufactured. It can only come from those willing to donate. To learn more or make an appointment, visit redcrossblood.org. Reconsider blood donation. It's about life. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. Last Thursday, there was a rally at the Capitol to support a bill that would ban foreign religious laws in Michigan. A lot of people at the rally were focused on Sharia law. Here to talk about Sharia law is Mohammed Khalil, professor of religious studies here at MSU. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Emily. So first off, let's just general just talk about a, a generalization. What is Sharia law and what are some misconceptions about Sharia law? Right. So Sharia means the path that leads you to some kind of a source. Um, and basically it is for Muslims the law as God would want it. Um, and because it is considered the ideal um, – and because humans are fallible, there's this assumption that we will never truly know definitively what sharia is or what it entails. And so Muslims have historically agreed to disagree. And um, there are some things that Muslims agree on. Uh, in fact, about three centuries after Muhammad, there was a scholar who compiled a list of doctrines that they agreed on. And it was a very small book, about 160 pages or so. Uh, same century, another scholar compiled a list of doctrines they disagree on, and it was a voluminous work. And I'm sure if someone were to undertake a similar project today, the list of doctrines they agree on would be much smaller, and the, the doctrines they disagree on would be much, that list would be much larger. Um, and what's interesting is that what Muslims typically disagree on are those things that make the headlines. Mm -hmm. um, and when people here think of Sharia, they think of stoning, they think of domestic abuse, and so on. And um, that's not how your average Muslim thinks about Sharia. And I think it's also it's important to note that there are no two Muslim countries that share the same interpretation of Sharia. Um, and the problem, I think, today is that there's this assumption that Sharia is like one thing. That there's a, you, you can pull out a book, uh, and this is the Sharia book, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and that perhaps the Quran is that book or something or so on. Really, Muslims disagree on what Sharia is, and you have schools of law that dis you know again they agree to disagree, and so um, uh, I think part of the problem is that people have. Um, Assume that Sharia is monolithic, and also they have they often conflate what are really cultural practices with Sharia. For example, in Pakistan, there was the case where a woman was gang raped, 
Um, and some said that that was Sharia. That has nothing to do with any interpretation of Sharia that is recognized by any of the major schools of Islamic law. That was a cultural event that was then conflated with Sharia. How do we see Sharia law pr- practiced in the U.S.? For your average Muslim, Sharia is really quite simple. It is a code of ethics. It's how you live your life. You don't steal. You don't commit adultery and so on. It, it's also um, maybe dietary regulations, right? Don't eat pork, for example. It, for some Muslims, involves inheritance laws. Um, for some Muslims, it involves financing issues. So do I take a, a mortgage on a, you know, for my home uh, if that mortgage... Uh, involves interest. Um, you know, these are questions that Muslims grapple with. Uh, interest. Yeah. Wow. So, of course, you know, you know, there's disagreement, right? But for some Muslims, interest is seen as a way of privileging the rich and disenfranchising the poor. You know, it, it benefits the rich and hurts the poor. That's the assumption by some. And so, um, so, so for for the average Muslim, that's what Sharia is. Now, there's this assumption though that. Um, it is necessary for a Muslim to want to conquer <laughs> their homeland because of Sharia. And what people here miss is that, in fact, there is a concept of minority Sharia. Actually, the term uses minority fiqh. And the idea is, is that there's, there's a whole body of laws for what you do when you are a minority living under predominantly non-Muslim rule. And in fact, there's also this concept of contracts. And the idea is that if you are a citizen, you are bound by a contract to your home country. And what's interesting about this is that there are clerics overseas who hate America. They hate America. And yet they will insist that if you are an American soldier, you should continue to serve in the army because of your contract to your nation. So that's another point worth clarifying. So for American Muslims, it's um, it, 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 I, I don't I don't think it really involves what people often assume it involves. Um, certainly for some, you can find exceptional cases, in, you know, always. But the but for the average Muslim, that's not the case. Are there such thing as Sharia courts in the United States? Right. Well, you know, you hear this about Dearborn a lot. Dearborn is taken to be the city where Sharia is dominating, and I don't know where. How people arrived at this conclusion. Dearborn with its three adult entertainment sites and more uh, alcohol-licensed bars and restaurants per capita than most other cities. And this is according to the non-Muslim mayor of Dearborn. Um, and so I wonder, what do people mean when they speak of Dearborn being uh, you know, governed by Sharia? I know that they have a McDonald's that sells halal meat. Halal being the Muslim version of kosher. Um, if that's what it all comes down to, maybe, okay, that's then that's something worth discussing, I guess. Um, some of the schools where you have 90% Muslims, um, they will take Muslim holidays off. Um, something that you'll find in similar cities where you have a large Jewish population. Um, so I, I guess I'm not really seeing what the big issue is. Now, for those who are opposed to the use of Sharia, um, in courts, they will point to a few cases that were aberrations, really, where uh, the, the two famous cases that people point to is a case in New Jersey and a case in uh, Michigan, where a judge basically um, gave preference to a, not the, a or an interpretation of Sharia, and then the next court overturned the ruling. Um, and so it was not... You know, it wasn't established, right? It was it was overturned, and um, so uh, there really is no. This is kind of more. This is a myth. There is no Sharia court. Um, 
is Sharia ever um, brought up as something worth considering as, as, as a factor? Of course, and anyone who is familiar with the establishment and free exercise clauses of the First Amendment would know that, yeah, if there, are, you know, re, you, there is such a thing as reasonable accommodations. So, yeah, of course, just as with Jewish law and, and, and Catholic law, for example, there are instances where people will take Sharia into account, but never does Sharia trump the Constitution. So what again? As I was, as I mentioned earlier, last Thursday there was there's a rally at the Capitol to to talk to to bring about a bill that would ban foreign religious laws in Michigan. What are your thoughts on the idea of banning foreign religious laws in Michigan? Well, I think if you look at the discourse um, that's coming from Representative David Ajima and others who are outspoken proponents of this uh, bill, uh, bill uh, was it forty seven sixty nine? I think is the number. Um, it's clear that their focus is Sharia, um, and I guess what troubles me is um, when you look at how they discuss Sharia and how they interpret Sharia, it is, to be frank, a bit problematic. Now, I'm sure they mean well. I'm not going to question their intentions, but their understanding of Sharia is rather simplistic and is, I mean, you know, when you see how they speak of Sharia, it's often monolithic. It's often more representative of a medieval mindset than a modern one. Um, and, you know, are there Muslims out there who, who agree with, with their, what they're claiming is Sharia? Yeah, of course. You're always going to find somebody who, has, who says something about some, you know, uh, about anything that you want them to say. But the, 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 the concern I have is that their, um, their interpretation of Sharia is not what most American Muslims think about when they think about Sharia. And how would you describe those differences in, in, in line of thought? Well, I'll, I'll give you an example. Representative Ajima noted that um, he has this statement that, you know, Muslims come to this country to escape Sharia. Now, if we assume that we're talking about believing Muslims, then here we have a problem with terminology just at the onset. And that is that if you are a believing Muslim, you love Sharia. The question is, how do you interpret Sharia? There are some liberal Muslims who think that Dutch law is not liberal enough. And there are conservative Muslims who think Saudi law is not conservative enough. And they all claim to believe in Sharia. So for someone to say that Muslims are coming here to escape Sharia, it tells me they probably don't understand Sharia. Um, that's the first thing. And this, by the way, is not limited to Representative Ajima. This is actually a nationwide problem with our media. The term Sharia has been butchered. Um, the meaning has been butchered. And, and so, how so? Just well, it's, just, it's presented as a monolithic entity uh, that is, um, you know, and again, people associate all of the negative things that we see. Um, so, for example, stoning, which you only really see in, you know, a handful of countries, maybe two, three, um, that's now taken to be Islamic law for everybody. Um, and, and, you know, it's interesting, you know, if you look at a country like Turkey, where the majority is Muslim, um, there women are not allowed to cover their hair under, in certain circumstances. In neighboring Iran, women have to cover their hair in certain, actually, whenever they're in public. And in both countries, the people there would say, um, we believe in Sharia. It just, they have a different interpretation as to how they go about, you know, organizing themselves politically and, and their policies and so on. 
How is there kind of a general rule as to how Sharia law treats marriage, divorce, or women? Right. So you know, here again, there's a lot of diversity. So regarding marriage, regarding you know, people like to talk about polygamy, for example, uh, or the ease with which one can divorce, um, or the fact that custody goes to the father. Well, in all those cases, I can find you exceptions to the rule, or not even I shouldn't even say exceptions. I can find you alternative perspectives. Um, for example, the idea that when there's a divorce, the child automatically goes to the father. Well, one of the major schools of Islamic law was the Maliki Madhab or the Maliki school of law. And the Maliki law is actually known for stressing that the child should always be with a, some kind of a woman. So if it's not the mother, then the mother's mother and so on. And go, there's actually a very long list of women uh, with whom the child should live. And so, um, and this is a major school of law that's developed in the Prophet's city of Medina. Um, and so, um, the problem here, again, is this assumption that Sharia is one thing, one entity, and ignoring the differences of opinion, um, ignoring medieval differences of opinion, and ignoring modern differences of opinion. I understand you have a new book uh, coming out called uh, Islam and the Fate of Others. Can you talk about that book? Sure. Um, so in, in the past decade or so, there's been a lot of talk of a clash of civilizations. Um, there are many who claim that we are headed toward or already in the midst of a clash of civilizations. And many think this clash is partly the result of an Islamic ideology that condemns all non-Muslims as infidels who will spend eternity in hell. And my book essentially problematizes this assumption. What I show is, I, what I do is I look at four of the most influential scholars in the history of Islam, four extremely influential theologians who are very different from one another. These are not American apologists. These are people living in the heartland of the Muslim world. And all four of them arrive at the conclusion that eventually, at least the overwhelming majority of humanity will be saved. And some had, you know, very liberal standards about which non-Muslims would be saved. Others had more conservative standards. But all agreed that ultimately we don't, we can't say with certainty who is going to heaven and who is going to hell. This is quite different from the exclusivist discourse that we see today uh, among some Muslims. Um, and so my hope is that this book will be educational to Muslims and non-Muslims. In the studio is Muhammad Khalil. He is a professor of religious studies here at MSU, and he is here to talk about Sharia law as it relates to there being a bill uh, here in Michigan um, that's proposed that to ban foreign religious laws here in the state. So, Muhammad Khalil, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, Emily. You're listening to Impact Exposure. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Tuesday nights from 8 until midnight, the Impact's progressive torch and twang brings you the best in alternative country and grassroots music. Only on Impact Primetime. You wouldn't send a text while using a chainsaw. Check out these pics of this huge tree falling. You probably wouldn't text while scuba diving. And you definitely wouldn't send a text while making out. You are so smoking hot. I love your elbows. 
Oh, wait, hold on a second. Huh? I need to send this. OMG, I'm like totally kissing him right now. Dude, what the f***? So why would you send a text while driving? Well, that's different. That's what about 6,000 people who died last year said. Oh. And now, it's illegal in Michigan to read, type, or send any text from your phone while driving. It's a $100 fine for the first offense and 200 bucks after that. Ouch. Check out Michigan House Bill 4394. Be a part of the solution and save a life. And seriously, put the phone away while you're making out. Aw, come back, Cuddle Bunny. You need help. 88.9 The Impact. Now back to Impact Exposure. You're tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. Last week, President Obama announced that he supported gay marriage. Here to talk about the impact of the president's statement, as well as talk about the LGBT community here at MSU, is James Madison Professor Michael Craw. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Emily. So once Obama announced that he was in support of gay marriage last week, the media just went gangbusters on this and covered so many different angles of this subject. How do you think his decision will affect voters uh, in the, in the fall, and especially MSU students? Okay. Well, I think I think the timing of this announcement was was quite interesting. Um, one of the things Obama seems to be trying to do is to distinguish himself from from Mitt Romney, and and this is one key way in which in which he can do that. Uh, the the second thing I think that is interesting about this is that he's doing it at a time when it can really help him with fundraising, especially in the gay and lesbian community. He seems to be following a strategy similar to what he did in, in 2008, where he made it part of his legislative priorities in 2008 to repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell in the military. And, and that helped with fundraising in the gay and lesbian community at that time. Uh, this seems to be a similar kind of strategy to try to uh, raise money in the gay and lesbian community this time around. So the fact this happened right before George Clooney's fundraiser speaks to that. And, and, and it's interesting that today Obama took the next step and, and actually announced that repeating uh, the the Defense of Marriage Act will be part of his legislative agenda in a second term. Wow. So when this happened last week, there was a very interesting um, article uh, by the uh, Guardian that showed a lot of graphics that sh- that compared and contrast each state in the United States as far as where they st- stood with, with their legislation and how they treat um, gay couples or, or gay rights. And what I found interesting is that Michigan, Mississippi, and Utah were, as one of my friends posted on Facebook, the most legislatively homophobic states in the union. Yeah. Um, in that um, out of all the states, they had the least amount of rights that were given to um, their gay citizens, including um, it said that that Michigan, Mississippi, Utah are the only states that expressively ban same-sex marriage and joint adoption by same-sex couples. So does that, that does surprise you that Michigan stands out as being um, a state that doesn't have a lot of, of gay rights here? It, it, it does surprise me in a way that, that Michigan would, would choose to lump itself into uh, that, that sort of a category. Um, I, when it comes to economic development, I mean, there's a lot of emerging evidence that support for gay rights and tolerance in general, uh, racial diversity and so on, are, are critically important to attracting talented young people and, and, and to a state or, or keeping them within a state. And consequently, uh, that, ten, that tends to be very vital to uh, – uh, uh, 
keeping companies, especially high-tech companies that are sort of the wave of the future in, in the economy within, uh, within a state. Uh, so it's, it's, if anything else, uh, fiscal interest would seem to suggest that, that a more tolerant stance on gay rights would work to a state's advantage. I understand that you conducted a study of the climate of the LGBTQ students here on campus. What were some of your findings of that study? I did. Um, well, it, 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 it turns out, I think, that for the most part, uh, the, the, the mainstream gay and lesbian culture is, 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 feels quite welcomed for the most part, at, at Michigan State University, particularly compared to other university campuses. Uh, that was something that we actually undertook as, as the Gay and Lesbian Faculty Staff Association because we hadn't been hearing much from our constituency about what kind of issues and concerns were, were facing them. And so we decided to do a general survey to try to find out more about, well, what are some of the issues that continue to persist uh, on campus? Um, and what we found is that, uh, first of all, overall, uh, campus climate for gay and lesbian people at Michigan State University is quite healthy. But there, there are a few issues that remain and that uh, need more attention, I think, uh, particularly the climate-facing transgender persons on campus remains problematic. Uh, and, and I think the students actually have been quite good about taking the initiative on trying to improve that climate with uh, the gender-neutral housing uh, policy that was just adopted by residential services. Uh, we also found uh, that uh, there are issues with regard to the intersection between race and sexuality. That it turns out that African-American and, and other non-white people who identify as gay and lesbian feel less welcome on campus than, than do white gay and lesbian people. So this is something that we've discussed as an organization and that I know the, the LBGT Resource Center has also been interested in addressing. Uh, this is as, as a way to uh, continue to make sure that people at MSU, both students and faculty, feel supported and welcomed. I'm talking with Michael Craw. He's a professor here at MSU. Um, when we're talking about uh, Obama's statement that he announced last week, saying that he's in support of, of gay marriage. So a USA Today and Gallup poll released Friday found that 51% of those surveyed approved of Obama's announcement compared to 45% who did not. What are your thoughts on those numbers, and, and where do you think we stand nationally as far as um, – acceptance of, of gay rights? I think those numbers are pretty consistent with what, what we found with opinion polls of this uh, in the past. Uh, what we've seen over time is uh, gradual improvement in, the, uh, in, in people's attitudes towards gays and lesbians, their basic affect towards them. Uh, so when we ask people on – a standard opinion poll question on this would be to, on a scale of 0 to 100, rate how warmly you feel towards gays and lesbians. And Steadily over time, since the 1970s, when we started to track this, uh, that average number has been increasing, and the number of people responding zero to that question has been declining, both of which indicate that overall people are feeling more warmly to gays and lesbians. So it's not surprising that over time, too, we're finding greater and greater support for, uh, for gay marriage and gay equality uh, across the board in American society. Well, in the studio is Michael Craw. He is a James Madison professor here at MSU, and he was here to talk about the LGBT community here at MSU, as well as talk about Obama's announcement of his support of gay marriage that happened last week. So, Michael Craw, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Oh, my pleasure, Emily. You're listening to Impact Exposure. General, we 
just received word of an invasion. Speak quickly, maggot. Is it those Canadians again? I don't know, sir. We just heard that Monday at 8 p.m. the impact will be invaded. You stupid ninny. That's the Asian invasion. It's the poppiest, catchiest, and all-around toe-tapping his music out of the Korea, Japan, and China. But, sir, I'm no good with Asian dialects. Shut up and listen to the music, private. That catchy beat knows no language barrier. Now move out, everyone. Sir, yes, sir. The Asian invasion. Monday nights from 8 till 10 on The Impact. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to The Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Thursday nights from 10 until 2 a.m. Listen to The Hours of Power, the scariest and only metal show in the mid-Michigan area. Only on Impact Primetime. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. Every kindergartner in Grand Ledge Public Schools is getting an iPad next year. Up next is an interview I did with Grand Ledge Superintendent yesterday to talk about why 370 kindergartners will be involved in this program. So what spurred the idea to give kindergartners iPads? You know, I think um, the idea came in discussions in regards to technology and how technology was impacting um, students across the country and across the state. And uh, as we continue to talk about the uh, ideas of a one-to-one initiative for our students across our district, um, we really continue to come back to, okay, where do we start? And uh, we really thought that the um, kindergarten was an ideal place um, to start with a one-to-one initiative. What will these iPads be used for? You know, they really are an extension of the classroom and a tool within the classroom. Um, there are so many educational apps uh, that benefit students, um, both in literacy and numeracy, which is really what we focus on at the kindergarten level. Uh, but there are just hundreds of apps that are very, very um, specific and useful for students of this age that focus on letters and numbers. Um, spelling, and simple addition, subtraction, that um, they're really going to be used as a tool both within the class and um, as an extension of the class. When the students go home, they can continue to, to work on some of those lessons. And will these kindergartners that will receive these iPads next year, will they be able to keep this through their K-12 through education? You know, our, our goal is that um, we will have those iPads available for at least kindergarten, first, and second grade. Um, we really know that technology changes so quickly. I, I think the iPads have only been around about two years, if I'm correct, that we don't know what we'll have in place for after two, three, five years down the road. Um, but we also think that it may be more appropriate to have a, a laptop or a notebook computer um, as you get into the upper elementary ages, middle school and high school. So I really think that the iPads are very beneficial, at least K2 or maybe even K3. But I could foresee us looking at a, a different device um, for upper L, middle school and high school. I understand uh, $180,000 are allocated to this project next year. So with that $180,000 going towards iPads, are, is every kindergartner going to be able to have one next school year? Yes, yes. We have uh, currently um, around 370 on order, and uh, we anticipate that will um, 
will support all kindergarten student, students. And additionally, we have uh, two first grade classrooms at NEF, and we plan on supporting those first grade classrooms at NEF um, with uh, iPads as well. Will these iPads have internet access? Uh, they will have internet access, um, wireless access within the building. Um, they will not have the uh, um, 3G or 4G access that um, you and I may use on an iPhone or, or others use on their iPhone. Um, but anytime they're within a wireless environment, if they have a modem at home or anything along those lines, they will be able to access the internet. How are teachers going to be able to supervise their kindergartners or first or second graders using these iPads with that free range of Internet access? Well, we really have um, a system. Our um, district uh, technology server um, is SEPA compliant, um, which means that students can only go to so many uh, you know, appropriate sites. Um, but the other thing is that kindergarten teachers are working with a smaller class size and we have a ParaPro in every kindergarten classroom. Um, so we actually have a, a really good ratio of adults to students at our kindergarten level. And uh, we don't anticipate that being a problem. Um, but, you know, we're going to have some things to learn as we move forward as well. Uh, technology has provided us with a lot of great opportunities. And um, I think as we become more and more um, technology friendly within our classrooms, um, there are going to be lessons that we learn and, and uh, things that we improve upon. Uh, when I talked about this this idea of having an iPad for every kindergartner, some people were worried. They thought that, um, oh, soon we're going to have this idea of this virtual recess where people can just play on their iPads rather than go outside. Do you foresee any of that type of thing happening? You know, I, I think that our students are are coming to us with much different expectations. I know my um, my daughter, who's not even three, um, this weekend my wife was trying to get at a um, a recipe online of the Food Network, and uh, my my little girl says, "No, mommy, that's mine." And uh, you know she's about uh, you know just over two and a half, um, so it's already something that my daughter has um, taken possession of and thinks of that as her toy of, of her. Um, technology device. And I think the kids coming to us are very similar to that. So I, I certainly hope that we can uh, encourage balanced behaviors. I, I think that students need to go out and play. I think they need to have the, the time to run and, and to do that. But I think the students are going to, um, and potentially are currently telling us that they need more of these opportunities because they're ready for them. Um, I, I understand that uh, the iPad's been doing a lot for higher education as well. Um, I was recently in a, in a grad a grad uh, class at Michigan State University, and uh, they were they were we had to look at different ways that the iPad are using textbooks um, and different resources that go along with learning, and they they're trying to incorporate these into some classes. So when I thought about the iPads, I was thinking, oh, this this would be good for older students that are in classes. It may allow the schools to be bookless. Um, there's different resources you can go to. But it was interesting that you guys chose kindergartners rather than older uh, students to, to use this device. Why kindergartners? And, you know, and you're saying it's uh, kindergarten through second grade. So why this, this younger group to use the iPad? Well, I think um, we're really focused on the, the younger students with the iPads 
um, because it does not require the use of a keyboard. Uh, touchscreen allows the youngest children um, that do not have the well-developed motor skills to, to navigate with ease. Um, we do have a, a number of other um, computers uh, across the district that our, our older students use. Um, but I, I think this is one where we're looking at saying, okay, if we, as we move into the one-to-one -one ratio, and, and I think I, I really forecast our district being a one-to-one -one district probably within the next three to five years. Um, but I think that the kindergarten class is really a great opportunity for us to start um, to start the initiative. Are you worried that some students may not take great care of their iPad considering their, their younger age? You know, I, I think that's always a, a concern. I mean, it's certainly a concern when we hand out textbooks every year, and a textbook runs $60, $70. Um, but we have a durable color cover that we are ordering for each iPad. Um, covers are designed specifically for young children. Uh, we also are talking about explicit lessons that will be taught during the first weeks of school of how to take care of the iPad. Um, as part of the lesson, students will practice carrying the devices in the classroom, the school building, and outside and on the bus. And uh, I think parents that um, want to have their children bring the devices home will also pay uh, an insurance fee of uh, nominal, maybe it's $30 or $40, um, in order to help us um, defray the, the cost if one becomes lost or, or severely damaged. But, but I think the opportunity that we're giving our students can't be negated um, simply because we're concerned that we may have an iPad damaged or, or destroyed um, by a student in an accident, whether it be dropped in a puddle or or simply dropped on the, the cement or the blacktop. Uh, there's such a great opportunity for our students that I'd hate to see us lose that um, out of fear. And where is this $180,000 that's being allocated for iPads for kindergartners? Where is that money coming from? Well, the, the money's coming from um, Sprint. Um, in the early 1990s, the FCC gave school districts educational broadband service licenses. And the licenses were originally intended for over-the-air broadcasting of district-produced television programs, um, but most districts, including Grand Ledge, have never used this license because it was not feasible to do so, and the technology has gone a very different direction in the last 20 years. So one option that districts had available was to lease uh, that um, broadband um, publicly, and uh, with the leasing agreement, um, Sprint Nextel provided a, a lump sum payment plus monthly payments for a 30-year lease. And uh, at the time of the lease, Grand Ledge Public Schools set up a designated account for technology expansion and repair, and the lease funds were put into this account. And um, this is where we're, we're drawing on to, to purchase the iPads and um, plan on continuing to, to support those. Well, I think those are all my questions. Is there anything else you'd like to add? You know, I, I'm just so um, excited and, and pleased with our community and our parents. The, the support that they show Grand Ledge Public Schools is amazing, and um, we continue to have great partners out there. And I, I also have to give um, great kudos to our teachers. Um, you know, one of the things that people always say is it's hard to change education, but I'll tell you what, the, the teachers that we have at Grand Ledge Public Schools are so eager um, to get these iPads and to use them with students. and 
professional development that they're already planning for the summer. And um, they are just so excited about the opportunity that uh, I couldn't be more pleased with, uh, with the partners that we have. My guest was Brian Metcalf. He was the superintendent for Grand Ledge Public Schools, and he is on the show to talk about how every kindergartner in the district will get an iPad next year. And now for the Michigan Storytelling segment. This week's Michigan Storytelling segment features Michigan notable book author Ellen Airgood, who wrote South of the Superior. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. So what is this book about, South of the Superior? South of Superior, I really want to write about Lake Superior, which I think is just an incredible lake, but also the landscape and the communities, kind of the climate it creates within people and the sort of people it creates and the lifestyle. And is this a, a made-up place or is this um, a place that, that is in the UP? Um, the town that I set the book in is called McAllister. It is a fictional town. I didn't want to be pinned down to any particular real town with street lanes and businesses and people, but it's a town that's very much like the one that I live in or like a lot of small towns along the Lake Superior Coast, at least in Michigan and probably Wisconsin and maybe Minnesota, too. Can you read an excerpt from your book? Sure. Um, I thought I would read an excerpt that's uh, it happens about 20 pages in, and it's it's just a piece of the book that I happen to have quite a bit of fun writing, so that's why I chose it. Gladys hauled in the last of her groceries and sat down at the table with a plunk. Everything, of course, was just the same as ever. The floor in its pattern of squares, the table she and Frank had bought new a million years ago, the kerosene lamp that had been her grandmother's, the salt and pepper set she'd been so proud of way back when. It had all been more or less this way for ages, and what was wrong with that? But something did seem wrong with it lately. Gladys blew out a dissatisfied puff of air. Brooding was no good. She began stowing the groceries away, but the more she thought about what her friend Mabel had told her, the matter she got, and before long she was flinging things around, bang when a can of baked beans crash a box of oatmeal. What's wrong? It was Madeline, back at last. Do you know what these people have done, Gladys demanded. What people? Gladys slammed a box of bran flakes down on the counter. I don't know what things are coming to. These new people come here and think they can just change things, just do whatever it is they want. It's terrible. What happened? I stopped at Mabel's for coffee on my way home, and you would not believe what she told me. It's the last straw. The more I think about it, the more disgusted I get. They've done a nice job with that store. I can't say they haven't, but they've overstepped their bounds now. Besides which, their prices are too high, and half the things they have in there no one wants. Pesto and hummus, Gladys sneered. What for? What happened? Madeline asked again. It was clear she didn't think anything could have happened in the few blocks between 26 Bessel Street and the grocery store. Little did she know. They've cut people off their credit. Ah. They've cut off Emil Seno, for one, and Randy Hopkins and Mary Feather. I'm sorry, do they not have money to pay? Money to pay? That was hardly the point of anything. Did this girl know nothing? When had the last owners, Everett and Nancy, ever worried about money to pay? They'd run that store for 30 years without seeing fit to change the way things were done, and they'd survived, hadn't they? Just barely. But just barely was all you could expect in a place like this, or all you should expect. You couldn't get blood out of turnips. The Bensons might be just trying to make a living, but they wanted too much. They wanted it at the expense of the way things had always been done, and Gladys wasn't going to go along with that. She began shoving groceries back into sacks. What are you doing? Madeline asked. I'm returning these things. 
Gladys felt deeply irked at Madeline's lack of ire and banged a can of tomato puree into a bag, then followed it with a tin of smoked oysters. That gave her a pang. She loved oysters. A box of noodles went in next and a package of frozen peas. She hesitated at the baggie of the pricey cardamom seeds she flavored her rolls and breads with. She was out, and that was like being out of coffee, unthinkable, but then flung it in, too. So who are these people, the ones they've cut off, Madeline asked, taking things out of the bags and putting them back in more neatly. Are they friends of yours? They're just people. What are they supposed to do? Mary Feather's older than dirt, and they just tell her, sorry, we can't help you any longer? It's not right. Well, why'd they cut them off? Gladys didn't answer. Instead, she opened every cupboard door and then the icebox, making sure she'd gotten everything. Did they just stop giving credit in general? I know some places have a policy. No, no, it's not everybody, it's just a few. So it's just some people, people they don't like. It's nothing to do with liking. Then Gladys clamped her lips shut. What is it then? Is that all you can think of, nitpicky questions? Madeline raised her eyebrows. I only asked a simple question. Gladys slapped a bag of kidney beans onto the counter. Then she said, It's people who haven't paid on time, if you must know. People who tend not to. Oh, Madeline said. Yes. Gladys's shoulders slumped, and she sank down into the closest kitchen chair. So I'm on the phone with Ellen Airgood. She is the author of South of Superior, which is a Michigan Notable Book Award. I, I noticed when I was researching this book, um, the main character moves from, is it Chicago, up to the Upper Peninsula, correct? Correct, yes. And, and right. you happen to move from the Lower Peninsula up to the Upper Peninsula. And right. and you, you started a diner, and you, you've been a waitress there. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm curious, how much of your life um, is... is how much of this book can you relate to your own life? And I'm also interested in knowing, as as you were reading, I noticed there's a lot of food in there, so I'm curious how much of being a waitress influences your writing. Well, the book is definitely not autobiographical. I don't identify with Madeline in that way in terms of, like, that she's me in disguise at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say the central fact of Madeline's life so far has been that she comes from a, a very estranged family, and I don't share that background with her at all. But I needed to bring someone in from the outside, I thought, to be able to give both insiders and outsiders perspective on a place like this. And I'm sure that little things that Madeline, maybe not the big story, but maybe the way she feels about Lake Superior, that's pretty much how I feel about Lake Superior. So in in ways like that, we see a lot of things the same. But in terms of this being autobiographical, it truly isn't. Um, and food, I suppose, I think I'd, I really like food. And it probably it's what I know better than anything in terms of work. So I'm sure it shows up quite a bit in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I really had fun with Gladys throwing her groceries around. That was actually fun to write. And, and a lot of times writing is not fun to me. It's satisfying, but it's basically excruciating. So when I come to a point that I remember clearly having had a lot of fun doing, I I get a kick out of it. Well, excellent. On the phone is Ellen Airgood. Again, she is a Michigan notable book author, and she wrote South of the Superior, and she was featured tonight on the Michigan Storytelling segment. Ellen Airgood, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. It was fun. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. 